Welcome to Season 3, Episode 14 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Merve Emre. Neve is a writer, a critic, and academic. She joins me from her home in Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining me, Merve, and Happy New Year. Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year to you as well. You recently moved back to the U.S. after a period in the U.K., and now you are in New Haven, Connecticut. How has the move been back to the U.S.? It's been wonderful. I'm very, very, very happy to live about five minutes from my parents, As I think you and I discussed earlier, we both have young children, and so we know how important it can be to have family around to lend you a hand. And my husband and I have been living abroad for the past six years and have had very little support. And so it's really been a relief and a blessing to be back home. Yes, I can imagine how hard that would have been living for that period of your children growing up in those really young years, living away from parents, that must have been really tricky. Well, it's just exhausting. You know this, that Mm. someone is always demanding something of you. And it is extremely helpful, even for five minutes, to be able to hand those demands off to another person. Mm. And not having that was, yes, was very challenging. So it's nice to have it in place now. I'm sure. How was your experience uh, at a place like Oxford? Um, and how did you find the difference in the academic system between the U.S. and the U.K.? No, oh, that's an interesting question. So I think the best way to answer that question is maybe to just tell your listeners that I am primarily a sociologist of literature, which means that I think a lot about how the different institutions that we inhabit shape the ways that we think about, interpret, judge, and teach literature. So for me, the reason it was interesting to be at Oxford, and maybe I'll just say that previously, before I was at Oxford, I was at McGill University in Montreal. The interesting thing about being at both of those universities was having a sense of how literature is taught outside of the United States. And even though those universities all teach in the same language, how they teach or what they think the purposes of an education are, are are vastly different. So I felt like I saw this on the level of the university, but I also saw it with my children who were going to primary school in the UK. And it was striking to me how extremely standardized and extremely regimented their early literacy and mathematics education was. And it was so regimented that when the principal of their school wanted to introduce art and music classes as supplements to their main literacy curriculum, she was told that she couldn't because there wasn't any space in the day to take away from the time that had to be devoted to those basic skills. So to me, that's very, very interesting because I think a great deal of how we are shaped as thinkers, as writers, as critics, as intellectuals begins very, very early on. And academics in particular are fond of having debates about what we teach in the university classroom, but really that's not the most important place where we ought to be looking to when we're thinking about how we shape young minds. We have to look even earlier. So one of the benefits, too, of being back has been moving from that hyper-regimented, hyper-standardized system where students are constantly being tested and bucketed and tested and bucketed to a system that discursively, at least, places a lot more emphasis on free thought, on creativity, on intellectual experimentation, and on curiosity. And you could say, and you would be correct to say, that those are ideologies in their own right, that they're not exactly innocent. But to me, it creates a different kind of student and a different kind of atmosphere for thinking, which probably because I was raised in it, I tend to affiliate myself more with or value more. Yeah, as someone who's taught early childhood for quite a long period, I completely agree with you that uh, idea of having this regimented system. We do somewhat have that here in Australia too, but there's probably do, yeah. yeah, there's probably a little bit more room to move. Um, I know that UK system is 
highly regimented and um yeah i think that doesn't focus on experience as much as some of the other systems well even something as simple as the fact that in the uk students apply to a university like oxford already knowing what they're going to specialize in mm. we admit students to the english major we do not admit them to the university and then allow them to spend a year or two taking courses in whatever they want before they choose to dedicate themselves to the study of English. That's much more what the American liberal arts model is about. And I think that there is some benefit in allowing students to spend a couple of years figuring out what a discipline is, what its objects are, what its protocols are, what its assignments are, before telling them they have to commit to it. More generally, I just say, you know, 14, 15 years old is far too young to commit to anything. Mm. <laughs> and we shouldn't expect it of anybody. Definitely. Um, speaking of elementary school, do you want to tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up? I was born in a small town in Turkey called Adana. My parents were physicians in Turkey and they had to do mandatory community service in a town that had no doctors. So that's where I was born. And my father was a medic or had worked as a medic during the coup of 1980. And I think he and my mother both saw or sensed the direction that the country would be turning in politically. When I was four, they left Turkey and they moved to the United States, to New York, to Brooklyn. And they were only supposed to stay for a year, but they decided to stay for longer. I grew up on the East Coast. I went to college on the East Coast. I went to graduate school on the East Coast. I had a brief stint as a management consultant between college and graduate school, which you know, was about 18 months, and it was long enough to uh, to make me absolutely sure that that was not the kind of work that I wanted to do. I mostly spent that time reading novels under my desk and getting yelled at for not doing the work that I was supposed to be doing. And I went to graduate school at Yale and got my PhD and then taught at McGill and at Oxford. And now I'm in the U.S. Wow. Back in the U.S. <laughs> Very nice. That's the whirlwind, the whirlwind, the whirlwind tour of my of my life so far. <laughs> well, you've written several books. You've had work published in numerous publications such as NYRB, The Atlantic, New Yorker. You judged the International Booker Prize, which is pretty cool. What kind of was that turning point that drew you into that world of literature? I don't know that there was a turning point necessarily. I had always loved to read and I had always loved to talk to other people about what I was reading. To me, the act of talking to other people about what you read is the predominant way to increase the pleasure that you get from what you're reading. I have always felt that since I was a little kid and I always had people around me who were willing to or could be coerced into reading whatever it was that I was reading or wanted to read. I think that when I was in college, like the child of many immigrant parents, or I mean, I was an immigrant myself, so like many immigrants, I was extremely concerned about financial security when my parents and I had immigrated to the U.S., we had nothing. And my parents, who were credentialed as physicians in Turkey, had to start their training all over again in order to be credentialed in the U.S. So I had a fear of being able to provide for myself. And I still have a fairly, some would say, illogical, others logical fear of being insecure. So I thought that going into something that had to do with political science, the law, business, one of those fairly standard professional managerial occupations was what I needed to do in order to be more secure. And if I had to pick one turning point, I would say it was when I was in college, I took a class on Saul Bellow. It was an entire seminar on Saul Bellow. I think it was taught maybe the year, the year after he died. And it was taught by a very controversial figure than a woman named Ruth Weiss, kind of neoconservative scholar of Jewish literature, but an absolutely inspiring 
and highly, highly persuasive teacher. And sitting in that seminar room week after week with some of the smartest people I think I've ever been in a classroom with, talking about Saul Bellow's moral and aesthetic vision was, to me, the point where I realized I really didn't want to do anything else with my life. But I remember telling my mother that over the phone and her laughing and saying, well, what, what would you do with literature? What could you do with it? And I think that fear stayed with me. And so as I told you, I went to become a management consultant and realized that I did miss that seminar room. And I did miss asking those kinds of questions about the moral and ethical and aesthetic valences of fiction enough that I had to go back. And I went back in a way that I would never recommend to any of my own graduate students, which was that I went back simply because I loved reading and talking to other people about books. What does your mom now think about your current work? <laughs> well, the, the second I dedicated a book to her, she was like, I always knew. <laughs> I always knew you were meant for this. No, they're very, they're very happy. I think that I think that once they got over their own kind of financial insecurities, they were able to see that there are many other things that one can do in this world. And those things don't necessarily have to be motivated by money, although it's good to have some. But I think they became a lot less judgmental of me not taking on one of those very typical immigrant child jobs that they affiliated with upward, that they associated, sorry, with upward mobility and with assimilation and things like that. Well, speaking of your management career, one book I wanted to ask you about was your book, What's Your Type, uh, about personality testing, which I think you discovered through your management career. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that book and what interested you in that subject? Well, like I talked about in the introduction of the book, one of the very first things that I did when I was an associate consultant at Bain & Company was take a personality test. And another maybe interesting or relevant part of my upbringing is that I do not come from a family that particularly prides itself on self-assessment, on emotional or spiritual or psychological interrogation. And to me, coming into contact with a vocabulary for being able to describe yourself was a totally novel experience. So when I took that personality test and I felt seen by it, when I felt seen by its vocabulary, by its particular idiolect, that felt like a moment of revelation for me. And it sounds extremely cheesy to say, but when I set out to write the book, one of the things I did was go to a training program for personality test assessors. And it was extraordinary to hear how many people had similar stories of being seen, of having their true self revealed, of being able to then embark on some kind of journey of self-discovery to which they otherwise would not have had any sort of access. So that was the first motivation for writing the book. The second was more about the biography of the creators of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is the test that the book focuses on. It was very surprising to me to learn that they were two women, a mother and a daughter, who had no formal training in psychology or sociology. And the question of how they managed to invent and then eventually become erased by their own indicator was narratively very, very interesting to me. And perhaps the third thing that I'll say is, as someone who writes about fiction, I'm always thinking about the question of type and of the difference between character and type. And I think I was telling you before we started recording that a piece that I'm working on right now is very much about contemporary fiction's attraction to type and to typology and the way that type becomes the historical ground from which character is created and then various narrative mechanisms or narrative techniques need to be brought in in order to transform those types into characters. So I've loved reading your long-form reviews and essays. You've written about Eleanor Ferrante. I'm going to stuff his name up. Jan Fosse or John Fosse? Fosse? Is it a good 
I told you my kids call him John Fussy. Yeah, Yun Fussy. Yeah, I think yeah. I'll stick with John Fussy. I like that. Our own Gerald Manane, who's probably living a few hours away from me at the moment. Virginia Woolf recently rolled out, which I'll definitely ask you about shortly. Dasha Jurindic as well. With these essays and things like that, is it something that you are pitching these ideas or are people approaching you to write uh, these pieces? How does that work? I have been very fortunate to work with a handful of incredible, incredible, incredible editors at The New Yorker and The New York Review of books. And often, and often what happens is the editor says, we would like a piece on this. And we think you would be the right person to write it. And I almost always say yes, just because constitutionally, I'm almost incapable of saying no to anything. I like writing about lots of different things. And I like reading lots of different things. So it's very hard for me to turn down to turn down an assignment. I think that what I've learned is that 50% of being a good editor is figuring out how to match the right critic with the right author. So for me, that process of matching or where I think of my career is really beginning was with a piece for Harper's that Giles Harvey, who was then editing for them, assigned me on Rachel Cusk. Mm. To me, that piece on Cusk is the first real piece of literary criticism, not literary scholarship, but literary criticism I think I've written. And then after that, many of the authors that you named are memorable to me precisely for the editor who matched me with them. So Sasha Weiss at the New York Times Magazine matched me with Elena Ferrante. And then at the New York Review of Books, Gabe Winslow-Yost and uh, Yana, uh, whose last name I am horribly blanking out on now. I'm sorry, Yana, if you're listening. Uh, Gabe Winslow-Yost and Yana have been amazing at giving me or bringing to my attention writers that they think I would find productive and entertaining ways to think alongside with, beginning with Diane Williams there. And then at the New Yorker, my editor, Leo Carey, is a genius at this, just an absolute genius at this. So I, I think that that is part of the the great triangle of writing, whose three nodes are the critic, the editor, and the author. Wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. And that must be fantastic for you to be the stage of your career, that that's the way things work. That's amazing. I, I mean, I still pitch things occasionally and I still get turned down for pitches occasionally. And sometimes people don't even respond to my emails, which <laughs> which happens to happens to all of us and continues happening to all of us, I suppose, with very, very, very few, very few exceptions. But no, it is it is nice because something I've learned is that I am not always the best judge of who I will write well or passionately about. And in my experience over the past couple of years, sometimes the pieces that I've pitched have actually been the ones I've ended up being the least excited about. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you about some specific authors. I want to start with Ferranti. She's become one of the most famous authors on the planet, and there's this added fascination with her as her identity has been reasonably well disguised for the most part. Do you want to tell us a bit more about her and what makes her so interesting? So I I should say that my experience of reading and writing about Ferrante is really impossible to separate from the experience of writing a book about her with three co-authors, with Juno Richards, Sarah Chahaya, and Catherine Hill. And I think what made her fascinating to me, but really to all four of us, was her absolutely extraordinary and unstinting ability to bring together the experience of two individuals, two highly compelling individual characters with these very, very large-scale historical narratives about Naples, about Italy in the second half of the 20th century, and to weave those together in ways that felt to me then and still feel to me now when I reread her absolutely seamless. 
I think in that sense, she is a consummate novelist and an old-fashioned one in certain ways. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I will say that is maybe a little bit more prosaic is simply that she's a wildly entertaining writer to read. I think as a novelist, she has a fantastic sense of pace. I think she has an incredible sense of character. And I think she has a wonderful ability to create these narrators who do not know themselves, but somehow know enough to narrate something on an extraordinary scale. And it's that tension to me in Ferrante's writing between the self-deceiving narrator or the lying narrator, which is very important to her most recent novel, The Lying Life of Adults. The tension between the self-deceiving narrator or the lying narrator and the ability to convey a kind of knowledge or truth about large-scale historical phenomena, about categories like class and gender, that's the tension from which her fiction gains so much of its momentum for me. Mm. Yeah, she's pretty fascinating. That Neapolitan, the Neapolitan books, they are just insanely well-written and, and so readable as well. Have you watched the series? I have not watched the series because I didn't want to, I kind of felt like, I saw the first episode and I kind of feel, felt like I didn't want to, I guess, influence my own thinking on those books. Um, I should probably watch it. It's been a few years now since I read the books. But... I, I think you should. I And I also think the first episode, which was, I remember seeing the first two episodes before writing this piece on Ferrante and feeling very underwhelmed by them. But it is that rare series, which has actually only gotten better. And so I watched the rest of the episodes and felt entranced by them. And then I think the second and the third season have really only improved what was accomplished in the in the first one. So I do I do recommend watching them and I don't think it will change your thinking necessarily. It might influence it, but I think it would be for the better. Okay. Well done. All right. I've my watch list. I sold you on something. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. The next person who I think a couple of people have sold me on her work, especially Bram Presser, but also your writing on her is Dasha Drindic. Um, she's someone whose legacy has just grown and grown since her death, unfortunately, so early. Why do you think people should read her? Because they should. Why do you think they should read her work? So Drindic to me is incredible because she is interested in a question that I think plagues the contemporary novel particularly after someone like Sebald, which is how can the novel speak the unspeakable? And in my piece on her, I talk about how that question, which is urgent for the purposes of the novel, has been commodified in a way, or it's been subject to certain kinds of battles over public visibility that have cheapened the question. And Durindic knows this. She knows how difficult it is to write about atrocity. And she is interested not only in thematizing that. So I think about EEG, the novel of hers that begins with a scene of people in an asylum with their lips literally sewn shut so they cannot speak about what has happened to them. And she thematizes it. So she thematizes it that way. But she also enacts it, I think, in super interesting ways formally in her novels. And this ranges from the kind of, uh, you know, first person spiraling, spewing monologues that we know from a novelist like Bernhard to having these lists in her novels of the names of people who were taken from various sites across Europe and sent to the camps for extermination. And I think she dares you as a reader to encounter the sheer, unreadable, unspeakable scale of atrocity and to figure out what to do with it. To me, that puts her alongside a writer like Roberto Bolaño doing something very similar in The Savage Detectives. 
And I think both of them are asking us to think very, very carefully about how, as readers who enjoy all of the historical privilege of distance in time and space from when terrible things have happened, what it means to read about them and how it is that we should read about them, and whether fiction is offering us an ability or an opportunity to bear witness, or if it's asking us to do something different, if it's right to take pleasure in something like a list of 687 people of the names of 687 children exterminated in the camps. Is that something we're supposed to take pleasure from? Are we supposed to be disgusted by it? Are we supposed to speak those names? Wouldn't it be ridiculous to sit in your living room in New Haven, Connecticut, and read those names out loud? And I think they're all, both of them, but, you know, Durindich for me actually more powerfully are pushing us to the limits of how we think about the interrelation between story and crime, between novel and atrocity. Yeah, I think she's so interesting because that fine line, I think, especially of a novelist who is not Jewish in her case, writing about these atrocities from a Croatian standpoint as well, because obviously we know Croatia has had its own, certainly in her lifetime, had massive atrocities right, there. Right, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it's just yes. such a fine line. She she walks and she does it so beautifully. And and like you said, I think she really does mix that immersive narrative stuff with these like atrocities. So you kind of have to read it. Like you can't really, you can't really not. And like those lists, you can't really not read it. I think she's also interested in something that I'm perennially fascinated by, which is how is it that how is it that a person inhabits their body? And how is it that you inhabit a body when you know how cheapened bodies have become under oppressive or genocidal regimes? So to me, the great appeal and the great repulsion of her narrators and of her characters, her protagonists, is that they live in these bodies that are basically falling apart. Mm. And they've been falling apart for years and years and years because their bodies are in some ways inseparable from the body politics that have been ravaged by genocidal rulers and their militaries. So she's also thinking about that relation between word and flesh in ways that I find extremely, extremely compelling because there's almost nothing sentimental or redemptive in the way she approaches those relationships. All right. I have another couple of questions for you from uh, Seth over at Waste Mailing List. Um, and he's asking about Jan Fassa. <laughs> John Fussy. Let's stick with John Fussy. He says, I loved your New Yorker piece on John Fussy. Early in the essay, you identified Fussy's transition into a style you termed slow prose. Is this a stylistic shift you're seeing in contemporary writing, or is this something unique to him? And is this a form that you favor personally? I, I talk a little bit, or, or Yun and I talk a little bit in that interview about the term slow prose. And one of the things I say in the interview is that when we were on this pilgrimage, this fossil pilgrimage that frames the piece, his translators got into a fight at lunch about the idea of slow prose because Damien Searles, who's his brilliant English translator, was saying that nothing about it feels slow to him. And I, I think that's correct. When I read Fosse, I read him very quickly. To me, he is the definition, however perverse this might sound, he's the definition, his novels are the definition for me of a page turner, <laughs> which I don't think many people would say. But there's nothing sluggish about them. And when you encounter the blocks of text, you don't encounter them the way you would encounter, say, the blocks of text in something like Gertrude Stein's The Making of the Americans, right? Um, so... I, when I was interviewing Yon, put a little bit of pressure on that idea of slow prose. 
And what he said in that interview that I think is interesting is that he also doesn't feel like it's particularly slow. He wrote the novels quite quickly and they do read quickly to him. But what he wanted to stress, or I think the idea that slow prose was trying to fix, was that he had slowed down his lifestyle. So for me, it's it's not a particularly accurate or a particularly useful term insofar as it doesn't quite capture the aesthetic of either writing or reading Fosse. Insofar as whether there are other writers writing like that, I don't know that there I don't know that there are. I can't think of anybody off the off the top of my off the top of my head, but I'll give that one a little bit more thought. All right. He also asks, uh, you recently hosted an excellent discussion on the new translation of the Kafka Diaries by Ross Benjamin. Do you think there are any ethical quandaries to be made about publishing this intimate portrait into a writer's life? Or is this kind of a dead issue? I think it's kind of a dead issue. Although I was thinking when I, I did the, I spoke with Ross at the launch for the book, one of the things I was thinking of was how strange it is for a writer like Kafka to have died and have no sense whatsoever of his afterlife. That is, that's really trippy when you stop and and think about it, that, that someone could just die and think that they were only ever a, a minor writer and then become the emblem of a certain strand of international modernist writing. That is truly extraordinary to me. And I don't know if there's necessarily an ethical issue with it, but it's just weird. It's extremely uncanny to think about. But no, I don't think there's an ethical issue there. I think the ethical issue would probably be with Max Brod and yeah. with his to publish everything after Kafka told him to burn it. Mm. Yes. Yes. It's funny. I was thinking that, that the whole, I guess, Kafka, if you're going to look at it in that way, the whole Kafka... Uh, catalog is an ethical issue if you're going to right. i guess take it like right. that right right but no i don't i don't it doesn't bother me necessarily mm, exactly um with ross's book as well you've had a chance to read it i have just started it do you want to tell us a tiny bit about that book because i'm really looking forward to it oh well you're going to have ross on in a in a little mm. bit so i don't want to steal any of his thunder but maybe i'll just tell a story that i told at the launch which is that about four years ago, I was reading for a prize, for a grant, and it was about 2 a.m. on a Friday morning, and I was only halfway through my stack. I was very late getting all of my evaluations back, and I was doing that thing you do sometimes when you're late on something where you're skimming rather than reading extremely carefully, but I picked up the sample of Ross's new translation of the Kafka Diaries, and it didn't matter that it was 2 a.m. I sat there and I read the whole 70 pages and reread and reread parts of it until about five in the morning. I was so compelled by it. And the entry that I will always remember, the two entries, one next to the other, that I will always remember concern on the one hand, or the first one concerns Kafka reading Dickens. And you're probably, you've probably already read this bit because it's quite early on in the diaries. I think it's on page 18 or 19 of the new translation. He says something like, I'm reading Dickens and does anyone know how hard it is to get a story to go from beginning to end? It's like a locomotive that's made of steel and coal and oil and it has to go rushing and rushing and rushing through you. I'm paraphrasing. And then the entry immediately underneath that is he's thinking about the entry that he's just written and thinking about what it's like to dwell in the vowels of his own writing as if dwelling in a letter that had been traced by a ghostly finger. And I just remember being completely bowled over by those entries and in fact writing an email to a friend about them that morning, it become morning, that morning because I was so struck. And then clicking out of the submission portal for the prize I was judging, and a couple of days later trying to find those entries in the old translation, the one that Hannah Arendt oversaw, and finding them and feeling nothing. 
And I think the great accomplishment of Ross's translation, the great magic of Ross's translation, is that those words, Kafka's words, which felt stiff and, to me, unalive in the previous translation, feel lively and loose and like they send off sparks in every direction. To me, that's that's what makes it extraordinary. And I've used this word twice now in reference to, I've used this word once already in reference to a writer uh, for whom it's probably inappropriate, but I'll use it again. Those diaries are a page turner. <laughs> I, I could not stop. I could not stop reading them. I could not stop reading them. I get the feeling that it's going to be a book like uh, Clarice Lispector's Too Much of Life that I'm just going to have on my bedside table forever. Yeah. Well, you could figure out different ways to read it. I mean, this also gets us back to septology a little bit. One of the things people asked me after I did that interview with Jan was for strategies to read septology, because those of you who've read it know that it is largely unpunctuated or it's not punctuated by periods. That doesn't mean it's unpunctuated necessarily, but it's unpunctuated by full stops. And I think a diary like septology raises these interesting questions about how it is that you read it. So do you say, okay, every night I'm going to read an entire year's worth of entries? Do you read an entry a day to keep the time that the diary keeps? Do you say, okay, I'm going to read 100 pages a day and finish the whole thing in a week and then go back to it? Do you read it sequentially or do you dip in and out of it where you find entries that you like or that you're compelled by? How do you do it? It's a very interesting case of adjusting your reading strategies. All right. Well, I want to ask you about your fantasy piece recently uh, on Roald Dahl with his new biography by Matthew Dennison that you reviewed. Do you want to tell us about your research in style and some of the interesting things you discovered reading this biography? Well, I, I think that perhaps the place to start isn't with Dahl's biography necessarily, which, you know, Denison's biography is the third biography of Dahl. There have been two previous ones, both of which I think are better than this one. And if people were interested in the ins and outs of Dahl's life, which were fantastic and strange and objectionable in various ways, I would read the first biography, which is Jeremy Treglon. Treglon, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, T-R-E-G-L-O-W-N, his biography from the mid-90s, I think. To me, the reason I wanted to write about Dull was because Matilda had such an enduring influence over me as a reader for a very, very, very long time. And I think, I don't know, perhaps those of us who read for a profession or write for a profession have this, that book that you read when you were a child that is etched into your mind or etched into your being in one way or another. And for me, that was Matilda. And what I wanted to understand in writing this piece about Dahl was less about Dahl himself and more about why it was that this book formed, for me at least, a kind of ideal of how the reader should be, and an ideal that in retrospect turned out to be in some ways affirming and in some ways extremely disappointing. Yes. Uh, I think one of the things your piece touches on, and we discussed this before we started recording about, I guess, this English idea of aristocracy or uh, getting into that upper class, which I think Dahl struggled with. And we were saying before that, you know, he married Patricia Neal, this American princess, and kind of kept on trying to be part of this British thing and yet kept on kept on almost excising himself from it. Well, he, he, he was an interesting figure in that regard because he was the son of a Norwegian merchant who wanted nothing more than for his children to grow up to fit a particular English mold. And that involves sending his children, sending young Roll to what in the UK are called public schools, but we would think of in the US as private schools, sending him to these very exclusive 
boys' public schools, which are renowned for their cruelty, for their abuse, both emotional and physical, and possibly also sexual. All of the biographers speculate about that. And he hated it. As a child, he absolutely hated it. And he was always more attracted to America, where he went after the Second World War. And when he started writing children's books in particular, his books were much more popular and much more widely regarded in the United States at first than, there were, than they were in the UK. And I think that tension or one of the tensions that were that that were that shaped his character as a as a person and that I think to a certain extent shaped the children's fiction too was this tension between the capacity to make it big in America and to make it big as part of as part of a whole apparatus of entertainment which included not just the children's books but also Hollywood and television and magazines like The New Yorker, where he was on contract for a while. And then the ability to occupy a privileged place in a very particular class structure in the UK. And to me, those two impulses were always at war within him. The desire to make it big on the one hand and the desire to enjoy a certain kind of distinction on the other. And they mapped, not perfectly, but largely mapped onto these different geographic locations onto the US and onto the UK. I find it really interesting in that piece, especially because he obviously had quite a lot of success, like with his work in film, like on a James Bond film that he wrote the screenplay for. Um, you know, he was a basically a spy over in the US while he was there in Washington, um, worked on the, another Ian Fleming project, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which I remember loving as a kid. But I think the interesting part is that I feel like his success was always mixed with this almost failure, especially with his, I guess, more of his adult work. Because I think I get the feeling, you know, like having never having written a successful adult novel, um, I think his only adult novel was pretty much Pulps. I think I've got a copy of it here somewhere. But never reaching that success that I think he wanted for himself, apart from through these kids' books, I think is a really interesting thing that you bring up. It is interesting, but the flip side of that would be an argument that someone like Jacqueline Rose makes very persuasively about children's literature, which is that children's literature isn't for children. Mm -hmm. Children's literature is for adults, and it's written for adults, uh, or it's written with this with the wishes and the fantasies of adults at its forefront. So on the one hand, I think you can say, yes, absolutely. He was not successful within a particular world of high literary adult fiction that he desperately, on some level, desperately wanted to partake in. And so he could only be successful on the level of children's fiction. But that doesn't mean that all of the all of all of the adult impulses or all of the adult desires were suppressed. In fact, you could say that he gave even freer reign to certain adult desires or fantasies or impulses through the guise of children's fiction. And to me, what's interesting or what was interesting about writing the piece was, you know, to do the kind of research for it, I read, I read all of Dahl's books to my own children. And with the exception of Matilda, which they genuinely loved, and we couldn't stop reading it together, with the exception of Matilda, they really didn't like much of Dahl's fiction. And, and they had the same reaction to it that they had when I tried to read them Harry Potter, which was they just found it boring. In Harry Potter, they found the kind of intense bureaucratization of the magical world really boring. Mm. And it's all, they they just found the, the cruelty kind of boring. Mm. And that's interesting to encounter as an adult because you don't necessarily see that as a child or you might intuit it, but you look past it or you might intuit it, but not ever be able to articulate the reason for it. But I think as a parent reading to your children... 
and watching their reactions, it does teach you things about the fiction that you might not otherwise have noticed the first time around or noticed when you read it as a kid. I don't know if you've had this experience with your kids or not, but to me, this was a really interesting experiment. Yeah. So strangely, I have had almost the exact same experience with my kids because my yeah. older daughter, especially who loves reading, um, we've gone through quite a lot of the Dahl catalog, but things like the Twits and the Magic Finger, we didn't even, yeah. like we got started and like you just realized that they are, they probably haven't um, the same magic as something like Matilda. And I think they, they do, like I know when I read them as a kid, I think I did like them a little bit more, but I still sense that real, I guess, cruelty and this sense of um, certain nastiness within those works. So there's yeah. quite a few of them that I definitely don't like um, yeah. as much. It's funny because my kids, you know, so I don't know if you guys have read through the whole Narnia catalog, but that's what we're doing with my children. So we're on the horse and his boy. And one of the things I've realized is that they might actually have a higher tolerance for boredom or for what I would describe as boring details or a boring setup or kind of boring character formation. They might have a higher tolerance for that than they do for certain forms of crudity and cruelty. And that is that is is interesting because I don't think we tend to think that about children. I think that their senses of judgment are probably more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And that has been something, yeah, interesting for me to think about as I as I think about reading with my kids, but also writing about someone like Doll. Mm. I do have to ask you on that as well. Have you seen the Matilda musical? I have. I really disliked it. I mean, so I like the, I, oh, I should say, I, I saw it in theater. Like I saw it as a live performance and I remember liking it then, but I have very little memory of it. I remember finding the songs catchy and it was an entertaining two and a half hours to sit through. I, and then I remember seeing the movie or watching with my kids, the movie adaptation with Danny DeVito right. and Wilson and finding that extremely charming. And the children really liked that too. But then we, a couple of weeks ago, tried to watch the film adaptation of the musical, which I would say with the exception of the last musical number and the solo number by the actress who plays Miss Honey. Mm -hmm. My whole family despised it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely, absolutely despised it. And there are very few movies that we've watched as a family where every single person has said, oh, I hate this. I can't keep watching it. But <laughs> that was really that was really one of them for our for our family. That's so funny. Okay. I'll tell my daughter because she's watched it like 50 times anyway. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Maybe it's worth it for that final that mm. final number. Dancing is incredible at the end. <laughs> I want to ask you about, I guess, the legacy of, of people like Dahl and even someone like J.K. Rowling now. Um, how do you feel about them, I guess, after, after learning more about them and, you know, having them kind of, in a way, kind of being cancelled slash uncancelled? I don't feel anything different about them in part because I do think there are some forms of, I don't want to say evil, that's a little bit melodramatic. I do think that there are some forms of intolerance or some ways that a lack of sympathy carries through into people's writing. I think you see this with novelists, with children's authors. I think you see it with some critics too, for that matter. And I think that you don't need the personal information to render a judgment on the work. The cruelty and the limits of the imagination of the work are perfectly visible without any of that biographical material in hand. For me, you know, the reason the doll bio the reason I wrote about doll's life is because I was assigned to review a biography. But I could have just as easily written that piece and made most of the same arguments with the whole middle section excised. If it were just an essay, say, on Dahl's complete works, I don't think my argument would have changed knowing what he did or didn't say about, you know, 
about women, about Jews, about Black people, like none, none of that would have changed my assessment of the work. The The person who I think is actually quite good on this question is someone who I brought up earlier in our conversation, and that's the novelist Rachel Tusk. Her most recent novel, Second Place, has a really interesting stretch where she talks about how in writing or in the creation of art, something like a moral vision becomes clear, something like a moral vision clarifies. And it doesn't entirely belong to the author and their life, but it doesn't entirely not belong to them either. It's something in between the particularity or the singularity of the person's biography and how it is that they see the world. And what we judge isn't the person necessarily, but we judge the morality or the ethics of their vision. And we see whether it's whether it makes anything clear or brings anything to light that we would not have otherwise seen, or if it is in the case of someone like Dahl, just kind of cruelty for the sake of cruelty. Who are some of the authors you'd like to write about? Oh gosh, who would I like to write about? I, well, I'm currently writing about someone who I've wanted to write about for a long time, which is Italo Calvino, who I think if on a winter's night, a traveler, I would say is probably the second book that shaped my sense of self and my sense of what literature is and what it can do. So I'm currently writing about his, all of his work. And that's been, that's been really wonderful to do. I'm actually doing something similar for that piece that I did for the Murnane piece, which is, you know, the Murnane piece starts out with a kind of pastiche, Murnanian pastiche. Mm-hmm. And piece is also opening with a kind of pastiche of the second person address in If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler. Wow. So it's been really fun to write. I mean, that's one of the things you realize is writing about Calvino, just what an extremely fun writer mm-hmm. Calvino was, and how much space he's left you as a critic to play in all of the structures that he set up and all of the experiments that he organized. So... Calvino, uh, but I want to write about um, such a good question. You know, I just, because I was writing this Calvino piece, I decided to read the book that was probably the most important book ever written to him, and that was Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. And I didn't read it in Italian. I read it in its English prose translation. And I did that in one of the ways that I suggested to you to read Kafka's diaries, which is Ariosto, the the Orlando Furioso is divided into 46 cantos. And I said I would read a canto at night for 46 days. Hmm. And I've been fairly disciplined. There have been some days where I've missed a canto and I've had to double up or, you know, things like that. But it does make me want to write about about Orlando Furioso. Okay. Very interesting. About the process, the process of, of that kind of daily, daily reading. With that Calvino piece, when can we expect that and where will we see it? Uh, that's That will be in The New Yorker and I'm hoping in the next month or so. It always, always depends. <laughs> Wait to read that. I know that you always have lots of things on the go. Um, can I ask you what else you're currently working on? You know, I I think I told you before we started recording that last term I taught a course called Love and Other Useless Pursuits, and I'm going to teach another version of that class again this summer at the 92nd Street Y, but the title comes from the big book that I'm working on now, which is also called Love and Other Useless Pursuits, and it's a long literary and philosophical inquiry into the nature of love and the kinds of stories that allow us to theorize what love is and what it does and what its use is, uh, what we should allow it to do to us, what we can do with it. And so I am currently working on the first chapter of that book, 
Uh, much of it is drawn from the discussions that I led in the seminar that I taught. But that first chapter is on Plato's The Symposium. And it has been extremely fun also to write because it is kind of a fairly conventional work of literary criticism. And it is, I think, difficult these days to write or to sell a book-length work of literary criticism that is in no way uh, personal. There's no memory in it. It's not about my own relationships. It just has absolutely none of that explicitly in it. I'm sure implicitly it's all over. But uh, so figuring out how to figuring out how to position or how to narrate a work of literary criticism such that it will appeal to people who don't normally gravitate to that genre has been very fun. Awesome. Okay. Can't wait for that as well. Wait to finish it. <laughs> we mentioned If on a Winter's Night a Traveler for part of one of your gateway books. Do you have some other gateway books that brought Well, we talked about Matilda. Yeah. I talk in that piece quite a bit about Matilda. If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, uh, The Portrait of a Lady mm-hmm. is another big one for me. Um, I'm staring at my bookshelf to see if there are other just to the side of my computer so i'm staring no i think those are the three that i would probably say are real gateway are real gateway yeah matilda if one a winter's night a traveler and the portrait of a lady and i think there's a different argument that you could really make for all three of them being i mean matilda obviously but the other two also being a kind of young adult fiction yeah no i completely agree with that actually (laughs) (laughs) all right what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to this year Oh, well, we've talked about some of them. So, you know, I'm currently reading, like I told you, I'm currently reading Ariosto. I'm currently finishing Orlando Furioso. Um, I'm looking forward to a bunch of different events that I have with authors for books that I've read. So tomorrow night, Anne Goldstein, Elena Ferrante, and Calvino's translator and I are talking about her new translation of this wonderful, wonderful book by the Italian Cuban feminist author Alba de Cisperides. It's called The Forbidden Notebook. Okay. We will be discussing that tomorrow night. I mm-hmm. uh, And then in March, I'm speaking with Catherine Lacey, who has written this fantastic, fantastic kind of Calvino-esque or Nabokovian experiment called Biography of X, which is a biography of a Susan Sontag-ish figure written by her ex-wife. Okay. And I have to say, one of the very funny things that Catherine's book does that I like is that it is presumably set in the late 90s, early aughts, and the figure, the Sontag-esque figure, has became famous in the 70s and 80s for her cultural and artistic work. And Catherine has, you know, references throughout the novel of journalists, critics, other artists who have written or said things about X. And what she's done is she's taken all of these contemporary critics and put them in the book. (laughs) So, for instance, I I appear in the book as... (laughs) You know, Lorbe Emre writing a piece about a biography about X in The New Yorker published in 1999 when I was, you know, like 10 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when I asked her about this, she said, well, it was just so much easier to use the names of people I already knew than to try to make <laughs> up the names of a whole bunch of fake critics from the 70s and 80s. <laughs> but I think it's also kind of an ingenious marketing tool because now there are all of these critics who will certainly pick the book up to see where they where they appear in it. And it really turns the novel itself into a kind of buzzy scene, a buzzy New York scene, which I find an interesting an interesting ploy. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about that. That book is really quite delightful and smart and playful, and I'm excited to talk to her about it. And then maybe the third novel I'll say that I'm excited, or not novel, memoir, that I'm excited to read that I just received is a reissue of Michael Clune's book, White Out. Hmm. 
I don't have you heard about it or have you no I haven't heard about it he's he's I think a very brilliant academic and literary critic mostly writes about time Proust memory and recently had an interesting book come out called uh, In Defense of Judgment about why it is that as critics we should be making aesthetic judgments and how it is that we justify them and how we can teach students to make judgments. And he published this, I think, wonderful and really quite harrowing memoir about being addicted to heroin when he was in graduate school. And McNally Editions, which has been reissuing old, older works, is reissuing it in March, I believe. Okay. So about that. Those are the three. Yeah, so Alba de Cisperides is The Forbidden Notebook, Catherine Lacey's Biography of X, and Michael Clune's The Secret Life of Heroin. White Out, The Secret Life of Heroin. Brilliant. Once again, you've added to my shopping list. Oh, good, 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 good. I've sold you on multiple things. The Elena Ferrante adaptation, heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Merve Emery. This week's episode is brought to you by my interview with J.R. Moringer, the ghostwriter of Prince Harry's new book, Spare. Here's a sneak peek. Hey Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, what the fuck? I thought you said this interview was anonymous. Oh shit, can we start again? Yeah, okay, but just don't fuck it up this time. The Pulitzer Committee will have my balls. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Merve's Desert Island Books. My Desert Island Books. Yes. Yeah, so so how many do I get? You can get as many as you like. It's a big island. <laughs> we normally stick with 10. 10. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. You can see me looking around. Okay. <laughs> 10. Let us see. Quixote, Clarissa, I will confess to never having read. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That that I should remedy. Quixote, Clarissa, because I'd never read it and because it would take a while mm-hmm. to get through. Middlemarch, which I can sort of read over and over and over and over again and love teaching. Eric Auerbach's Mimesis. Wow. Um is just such a wonderful, continues to be, I think, such an incredible, incredible work of criticism. Ulysses. Ulysses. I just bought this wonderful collected works of Beckett and, and the spines make up his face, mm-hmm. that, that famous photograph of his face, which I think I would take to a desert island, like not only to read, but to be able to look at. Mm-hmm. It's always good. That doubles as doubles as artwork. I I think I take the collected diaries of Virginia Woolf. I think I would take some one of the I would take one of the translations by Anne Carson that have both the Greek on one side and the English on the other, because I feel like if you're on a desert island you might as well teach yourself ancient greek oh and i think i take um helen dewitt's the last samurai because that actually has within it the materials for me to teach myself Mm -hmm. ancient Greek based off of ann carson's translations what am i on eight yeah eight okay i take septology i take the new bound septology and Ten. Oh my God, this is so hard. What would be my tenth? Oh, I think I'd take the Thousand and One Nights. Brilliant. Yasmin, I take Yasmin Seal's new translation of the annotated Arabian Nights. Thousand and One Nights. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a pretty good desert island. I don't think I regret any of that. Normally, when I do this kind of exercise, I immediately regret all of my choices. <laughs> Then that makes me regret my life in various ways, but I don't actually think I regret any of those answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. Brilliant. Well, I should let you go. 
um, and get back to your afternoon. Of course. Thank you for chatting with me. This was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun chatting with you. Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can catch up with you online and where we can go and find all of your amazing work? Sure. I'm on Twitter at M-E-R-V-A-T-I-M, Mervatum. Supposed to rhyme with verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I I mostly post the stuff that I write there and then I, I have a website that I update fairly regularly, mostly so I can remember where I'm supposed to be when, and that's just merveemray.com. Brilliant. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope we can do this again soon. I would love it. This was so much fun. Thanks once again to Merve Emery. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a voice message over at anchor.fm forward slash beyondzero. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon. <laughs>